The first thing is we have to think about what do we have to position against? Step two is what do you have that they don't have? And then we'd look at, okay, so we have that feature, so what? Like, why does anybody care? Like, what's the value of that? Hello, and welcome to Confessions of a B2B Marketer. Today we have a big one. It's April Dunford, who is the person who's making positioning actionable. We've got two books, obviously, awesome and sales pitch that we run through. I think if you didn't want to read the books, obviously you should, and they'll be linked below. This episode will give a very awesome overview to the two books, and you could probably make some changes to your positioning or your sales pitch without even reading the books. Now, unfortunately, I didn't actually read the books before the interview. I had obviously awesome on my Kindle, but I hadn't read it. And then the sales pitch only just came out, so I hadn't bought it yet. Since then, so we recorded last week, I have now read obviously awesome. And let me tell you, it is game changing for anybody in the B2B space that's looking to understand what positioning means and also gain benefits from better positioning. So super crucial episode for any B2B marketers out there. Want to give a big shout out to Fame, who is producing this show. Also, my business, we start and grow the most profitable podcasts for B2B companies. There'll be a link in the show notes if you want to check us out and request a proposal completely free. We'll give you insights on your podcast. So let's jump into this discussion with April now. Again, I was in the co-working space without my mic. That problem is now solved. So my audio might be slightly worse just during the interview portion of this episode. April, welcome to the show. So great to be here. Thanks for having me on. The positioning guru is what I've been told. <laughs> Do you know what? Okay, I'm going to say this just because I love it so much. So some guy on LinkedIn called me the Beyonce of positioning. And I was like, oh my God, I love that so much. <laughs> that is epic. <laughs> I don't think I'm the Beyonce of positioning, but I wish that I was. <laughs> it's goals. Hashtag goals. <laughs> <laughs> so... What we're going to do today is we're going to try and do, these are not the actual names of the books, obviously, but book one, book two, Yep. because they flow nicely together. I've heard awesome things about both books. And so first, we're going to start off by understanding specifically through a B2B lens, Yeah. how people can position, because it's such, if people get this right, it seems like it just makes everything else in B2B marketing easier. So I'm going to hand the floor over. Yeah. Yeah. So... The, the origin of book one came out of my deep frustration in trying to figure out how to do positioning. So positioning is this really fundamental concept. So we have this idea that the positioning defines how we win in the market, like how we deliver something that's amazing that no one else can deliver. And right from my very first marketing job at a B2B company, we were always wrestling with our positioning. If you look at the state of the education around positioning, like what you learn about positioning, like even if you go to marketing school, which I didn't do originally, but I did end up taking a lot of marketing courses in the end. But if we look at it, there's a lot of stuff written about positioning at a very conceptual level. Like, here's what it is. Here's what it looks like when it's bad. Here's what it looks like when it's good. The foundational textbook on this thing is a book by these guys, Rees and Trout, called Positioning to Battle for Your Mind. And this was written in 1982. So before the internet, before a lot of people were born at this point. <laughs> and the great thing about that book was it, it really gave you a firm understanding of what positioning was. What it didn't do was give you a methodology to actually do it. And so 
for me, as a vice president of marketing working in a B2B company, I was like, well, that's fine. I get what it is. But my big worry here is how do we do it? Like, how do we make sure the positioning is really good? So I eventually, when I was back in-house, developed a bit of a way to do positioning. And in the later parts of my career as a VP marketing, that's why you hired me. You hired me because I could come in and say, all right, I think the positioning might be weak here. I've got this little way to do it. I could explain it to you. I could write the little thing down on a piece of paper and they'd be, ooh, that sounds good. We'll hire you to come in and do that. And then seven-ish years ago when I made the switch to consulting, I thought, well, this would be a thing I could teach people how to do. And then the book came out of that. So the book is essentially my answer to the question, how do we actually get this thing done? And so the first book is called Obviously Awesome, and that's what it's intended to do. That makes total sense. Could we pick either one of the companies where you were the VP marketing or any, I'm sure there are many examples of the book. And by the way, guys, both books are going to be linked below, so go and buy them now. But could we pick one and then just look at or take a look at it pre your positioning process and then post to give an example for the audience? Sure. So I don't think which one to pick. There's like seven of them. So I'll give you one of the later ones. I got hired at a company to be the VP marketing at a company that had been around for a long time. In fact, they were actually public on the Toronto Stock Exchange, which most of you out there won't even know is a thing, but they were doing decent revenue, like 80, 90 million revenue, I believe, when I joined. So not startup, startup, but not big company like IBM either. And when I joined, the positioning was mushy and you could feel it in a bunch of ways. So they were positioning themselves as a data replication tool. Like you have data over here and you have data over here and this thing replicated the data. Now, when this company was first launched, data replication tools were a thing that it was a category of solution that you would pay for. But fast forward 10 years or whatever, when I'm joining, like, a data replication tool, for the most part, you got that for free when you bought your database. Like all the databases shipped with a replication tool. So now their thing could do replication across lots of different types of databases. But if you looked at it, positioning as a data replication tool, like the first question was like, wait, I don't need that. I have that. And that costs nothing. That's a free thing. The market had shifted significantly and there was an emerging category of solutions called information integration. And information integration wasn't just about having data here and having data there. It was actually data could be anywhere and transform that could be anywhere. And there was a whole bunch of things you could do with that if you had an information integration tool. Specifically, what Datamir had was an information integration tool that worked really well if what you wanted was continuous uptime. Like one of these things go down and you don't want it to go down. And so you could have backup data all over the place and then it would help you bring that thing back up. So when I started there, revenue had been somewhat flat, growing, but not growing as fast as they would like. The CEO was interested in exiting. So he had been there a long time. They had gone public, but the shares were lightly traded because nobody knows what the Toronto Stock Exchange even is. And so his goal was to get the company sold. And so I felt like, one, we could probably do a lot with a repositioning so that people would just understand what the value of this thing was. And then two, we could probably get the growth happening again in a lot of different ways. Like, you know, the sales pitch was really weak. There were a bunch of things that were weak. We were doing a lot of really wasteful things in marketing. So we did the repositioning and we started by go into some of the analysts. So our customers talked to Gartner a lot. And so first thing we did was kind of reposition it to the analysts. So we went to Gartner and one of the things we did was we pretended we had a had a whole new version of the product, which we didn't. 
what we called it? Like we gave it a new version number. And like, I think the previous version was like version four. And we're like, dude, this is so big. This is version 10. <laughs> and we did all this stuff, man. We're like skipping seven, eight, nine. We have version 10. And this thing is so awesome. And we talked about a bunch of stuff that we had had for a long time, but nobody understood it. So it was like it didn't exist. So we kind of relaunched a bunch of things under a new storyline and specifically positioning it in this new market. So we did that rethink. So we got immediately listed as a Gartner, like hot vendor, which was hysterical because we hadn't been hot for like 10 years. So now we're a hot vendor. And then we really tightened up the sales pitch on the sales side to really drive at this idea that we're an information integration tool and this is what you would use it for. And here's what the use cases look like. And this is how it's very different from data replication, very different from ETL, very different from the other tools you already have. Here's why you need one. And so revenue started going like this. Everybody was happy. We cut a lot of waste out in marketing. So we we're making a lot more money, but putting a lot less money in. And then the end of that story was we got acquired by IBM and everybody was happy, rich. Except me, because I hadn't even been there a year yet. Uh. <laughs> I thought it was going to take longer, damn it. <laughs> I was just out of a job because I had actually just come from IBM. And so I was like, I like going back there. So anyway, yeah. That is hilarious. At least you got a good case study for the book there. Yeah, I did. I didn't even use that one in the book. I used a bunch of other ones. But yeah, no, Data Mirror didn't even make it into the book. But yeah, I'm using it now. Good podcast talking. <laughs> and so... <laughs> That was like a really good illustration of the power of positioning. And I'm sure you had your process happened in the background. So now I think if we can share the steps on the process, it's going to give context to the example. Yeah, yeah. So here's how it works. So the first thing is we have to think about what do we have to position against? So like if I use Data Mirror's example, we were positioning against data replication tools, which were free, but had very limited functionality. We were positioning against something called an ETL tool. It stands for extract, transform, load. So this is how you bring data out of one thing and put it in somewhere else. And those were the two main buckets of competitors. So when we came in, people were very confused. Like, are you this? Are you that? And we're like, no, we're this new emerging thing, which that category existed, but there were very few tools in it. And so we were like, no, we're this emerging thing, which is this information integration thing. So we step one is, who do you have to position against? Step two is, what do you have that they don't have? And so in our case, we handled heterogeneous data sources really well. So if you had a grab bag, you got Oracle over here and Sybase over here and some weird AS400 box over here, we didn't care where the data was. We could make sure that the data was the same in all the places. And if one of them went down, it could instantly pull the data from another source so that none of your systems would go down. So we listed, so there were a whole bunch of things. But that was the main one. And then we'd look at, okay, so we have that feature, so what? Like, why does anybody care? Like, what's the value of that? So the value of that was continuous uptime for systems. So let's say, for example, you're a retail company and you've got all this data that essentially makes the cash registers go. <laughs> if something bad happens, the cash registers don't turn off. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're a utility company, something bad happens, the lights don't go out. So that's what we were about. The value of that was that. And then you say, well, who cares a lot about that? Well, it's not all companies. Like a company had to have 
a lot of heterogeneous data sources. And in particular, there were some data sources we were really good at that nobody else could touch. Like there were these weird IBM AS400 boxes that were really common in retail and utilities. So if you it was retail and utilities, we could really smash it. So lots of heterogeneity. And then also a use case where it was super important that the lights don't go out or the cash registers don't turn off or something like that. And so that's who cares a lot about that. So in when we looked at that, we circled a couple of vertical markets and use cases. So retail was a big one. Utilities was another one. And then the last one was, what's the best market category to position this thing in? Clearly, it's not a replication tool because that's underselling what we do. Clearly, it's not ETL. That's underselling what we do. IBM was spending a lot of time talking about this new market category called information integration, which I just happen to know a lot about because I had come from IBM and invented the freaking thing over there. <laughs> and I left IBM to go to Datamere. And I was like, this fits right in this category. IBM's putting all kinds of weight behind it. We don't really compete with them because we're down in the mid-market. So we could just sell there and win everything. So that's what we did. So that's how it mapped. And then we took that turned it into a sales pitch, turned it into marketing messaging, ran campaigns against it, and that worked really well. And we're going to get to the sales pitch in a second, but let's just see if I can pull out the points. So step one was understanding who you're positioning against. Step two is work out how you're different. Step three then is to, using that information, decide which category to put yourself in. Well, step three is differentiated value. So we are competitive alternatives, differentiated capabilities. We map the capabilities to value. So why do the capabilities matter? And then step four is, well, who cares a lot about that? So what's my definition of a best fit customer? And then the last one is market category. So what's the best context to position this thing in such that this value kind of makes sense to these people we're trying to sell to? It's very actionable, isn't it, compared to the positioning book? You know what the action is in the positioning book? The action is call them and they'll do it for you. <laughs> You're not supposed to be doing it yourself. <laughs> I know this because I actually called them once. So I worked at this startup and we got acquired and I inherited a bunch of products that, and my boss was like, okay, we're going to reposition all these products. And at that point, I didn't really have a methodology. So I thought, well, I'll just call these Rise and Trout guys, like, because <laughs> they must know how to do this. So they had an agency and I called them and it was very, very expensive to work with them. And their methodology was a big secret. Like they were going to interview some people and do some stuff or whatever, and then go away and do the magic thing and then come back and tell us what it was. And it was very, very expensive. Like it would have taken my whole budget. And every time you wanted to do a new product, you had to go back to them again. And I was like, well, that's stupid. Like we need to be able to do this inside. Like, so tell me how to do it. Anyways. So yeah, no, there's nothing actionable in that book. Although I love that book. I've read it 300 times. So let's now transition. I think it's a good time to go to book two, which is then we have this positioning. How do we then convert that into something that is going to be easy for our sales team to convert customers or convert prospects into customers? Yeah. So here's how I got to this. So at the beginning, when I was doing positioning as a consultant, I thought, well, I'll just teach teams how to do the positioning thing. We'll work on the positioning thing. And then if they've got good copywriters and people that can do messaging stuff, they know what the differentiated value is and they can convert that into messaging and that's fine. And then sales will figure out how to turn this into a sales pitch and that's fine and everything's fine. And then what happened was marketing was good. Marketing could take the differentiated value and go run with that. Marketing's happy. But sales is not. Like sales is like, intellectually, they're in the room when we're working on the positioning. They're like, yep, yep, yep. We get it. We get it. And they're really involved. And then they go back and they're using the same pitch they were always using. And so you're like, 
my dudes, what's going on over here? <laughs> and they're like, well, we don't know how to tell the story. Like, we don't know how to tell the story. So then I thought, well, surely there's an accepted methodology to build a, a sales pitch in B2B. Like, I mean, we've been doing this since the year of the flood. Like, there, there must be a sales pitch methodology. So I went looking for one and there just wasn't. Like, and in fact, most of the companies that I talked to, the vast majority, like 99% of them, if you looked what was happening in the sales pitch, there was no attempt to do any positioning at all. Like what the sales pitch was, was really a product feature function walkthrough. There might be a couple extra slides in there, like one that says company history and one with a bunch of customers that we've worked with, with a logo slide. But everything, the meat of the pitch was I got 57 drop-down menus and I'm going to click on everyone and show you everything in there. And there's no positioning in there. And it's up to the customer to figure out which of those features are differentiating and which isn't. What's the value of any of those features? How is this different than any of our competitors? Why should you pick us over the other guys? And nobody's answering that question, which is literally the question we need to answer in a sales pitch. So anyways, I was frustrated with that. So I had a sales pitch structure that I had used for about 15 years, I think, before I was a consultant. And I had learned it, well, partially from IBM. So when I was at IBM, what was cool about IBM when they did a sales pitch is, first of all, they never started with the product. They would never just jump into the product. And they would never start with like, here's the problem and we're the solution or there's a trend or a change. And then they would always start with, here's our IBM insight into the market. Like, we know a lot about this. We've worked with a lot of companies. We've seen a lot of stuff. And here's the way we look at it. And then they would have a conversation about that. And so I thought, and that seemed to work really good. And I thought that was intriguing. The second thing that IBM did was they never talked about features outside of the context of the value. So they would say, look, we're going to save you 20 million bucks a year on your customer service costs. And here's the features that enabled that. And then here's the value. Here's the feature. Here's the value. Just here's the feature. So we would never talk about features outside of the context of value. So anyways, when I left IBM, I went to Datamir, the one I was just telling you about, and I was new and the VP sales was kind of new. And so the two of us sit down, we were going to redo the sales pitch deck to reflect the positioning that we had worked on. And I said, hey, they had an IBM sales thing was in a binder and I stole the binder. So I like brought the binder and said, we're not going to use all of this because a lot of this is really specific to IBM, but I really like this setup bit and I really like this value orientation. So we reworked the sales pitch using that and that worked really well. And so after that, I'd been using kind of an evolving version of that structure since then. As a consultant, I started using it with my consulting clients because nobody else had a structure. Like you'd say, okay, we have the positioning. We need to turn it into a pitch. So I'm happy to use your structure if you have one. And then you look at their pitch and it's like, nope, feature function walkthrough. All right, well, forget about that. And then I was teaching people my structure. And so the new book is basically just that. If you want to do it on your own and you don't want the consultant to come in and tell you how to do, make a sales pitch, this is one way to do it. And so... I'm sure the book goes into more detail, right? There's the two things we definitely need to have, which is the unique insight. Yeah. And then whenever we give features, we have to give value. Is there anything else like high level that even without getting the book, somebody could get started today with their pitch? For sure. So the way I look at a sales pitch is there's two big 
pieces to it. There's the setup and the follow-through. The setup is where we're teaching the customer about the market and we're talking about the whole market. The follow-through is where we're talking about us and we're basically answering the question, why pick us over the other guys? Here's the value we can deliver no one else can. Here's how we do it. So the setup consists of like three parts. So we start with our unique insight onto the market. We move to here are the pluses and minuses of different approaches to solving the problem or doing the job that the customer is trying to do. And we get an agreement with the customer on, can we agree that if we really wanted to get this thing done and knowing what we know about what works and doesn't work with other ways of approaching the problem, can we agree that a perfect solution would tick these boxes? If we can get the customer aligned to that, Then we switch to the actual pitch, which is, all right, here's us. Here's what we do. Here's the value we deliver. Here's how we deliver it. We give them some proof. We can do what we say we can do. And then we end with the ask, which is whatever we want the client to do next. So my structure is kind of eight piece parts, and that's how it breaks apart. Got it. So are you then saying that if the salesperson doesn't get the agreement after those three steps in the setup, then... They're disqualified. They finish the sales part disqualified. They're disqualified. So I can give you an example. Do we have time for an example? Please. So there's a company that I've done some work with, and I've been using them as an example because they're easy to understand. So these folks are Help Scout. And so what they do is customer service software, like so think Zendesk, that sort of thing. So they're specifically targeted at digital businesses. So businesses that don't have a physical storefront and they don't have actual salespeople that sell stuff. So they sell everything online. In a digital business... Help Scout's point of view and how they, when they built this thing in the first place was that, look, digital businesses are looking for something different in customer service. They don't actually see customer service like a cost center, like your telephone company does, where they're just trying to get you off the phone or get you to use the FAQ or whatever. In a digital business, customer service is the one place where we actually get to talk to customers. So what we want to do is deliver an amazing customer experience because it's been proven that that drives loyalty, drives repeat business, all this good stuff. So Help Scout's solution is designed to do that. If you look at the differ, the competitive, so let's walk through the positioning. Who do they compete with? Most folks start with a shared inbox, which is really easy for the reps to use, but they eventually outgrow it because they want to do customer service stuff, prioritizations, assignments, all that kind of thing. So then they move to help desk software. And so everything else in the market is like Zendesk is kind of help desk software. Problem with that is two things, hard to use. So their reps have a big learning curve to get up to speed there. Second thing is all this stuff that's designed to reduce cost is actually delivering a terrible experience. Like you're not John anymore, you're case number 147. (laughs) So things like that. So if they were to just do a feature, feature, feature pitch, here's what it would look like. It'd be like, hi, we're Help Scout. Here's how you log in. Here's the main screen. Look, it kind of looks like a shared inbox. Looks, here's here's how we do prioritization. Here's how we do assignments. Here's how we do this. Here's how we do this. Here's how we do this. And we would keep hitting you with features until the time ran out. If you're the customer and you're like, I don't know, man, is that different from Zendesk? Is it? I don't know. A lot of those things, I think Zendesk has some of those things. I I don't really know what the difference is. It kind of looks like a shared inbox. Maybe I should just keep using that. So it's not really answering the question, why pick us over the other guys? So here's how you do it my way. My way, we start with the insight. So Help Help Scout comes in and says, hey, digital business. We work with a lot of digital businesses. One of the things we've seen is that we think digital businesses think about customer service in a different way. They see it as a growth driver rather than a cost center. 
And customers usually like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. It's the only place we get to. They have some nice data that shows how good customer experience can drive loyalty and drive revenue and all this stuff. And then they say, okay, so you have choices and how you could get this done. You could use the shared inbox. It's great. Easy. Your folks love it. We love it. That's great. But if you're growing, eventually you're going to outgrow that. And you're going to need prioritizations and assignments and things like this. Customer is usually there because of that. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah, we're having that problem. And then you say, okay, so then what's your choice? Well, you could go to help desk software. It's great. It does all the things, all the things, all the customer service things. Bad news is, one, your reps are going to be some up to speed time there. So making the switch from the shared inbox to that is not going to be easy. Second thing is that it's not really designed to deliver a great experience. It's designed to reduce costs. So people are going to be ticket numbers. It's going to try to push people to low cost channels. So in a perfect world, can we agree that like for a digital business like yours, what we actually want is something as easy to use as an inbox, has all the bells and whistles so I don't have to migrate off it and delivers an amazing customer experience. We want that, right? Yes. Now you're either with me or not, right? So, so if you say no, then you're not a fit for me, man. You should go buy Zendesk because <laughs> you don't care about delivering amazing customer experience. You just care about taking the cost out, for example. We can't win on that. But if you say, yeah, because I've done a good job setting this up, then I'm like, great. So let me show you the product. Let's start. Let's go through those three things. Number one, easy to use as an inbox. Oh, here it is. Here's the inbox. So nice. So easy. But your people can use it. No problem. Number two, never outgrow it because it has all the things. Look, here's how we do prioritization. Here's how we do assignments. Here's how we do whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then last thing, delivers an amazing experience. Look, your customer is still Tom. We don't get to call him some case number 25-7. And your customer actually gets to choose what channel they use to communicate with you because you want to give them the best experience ever, blah, blah, blah. So you can imagine that second way of doing a pitch works a hell of a lot better than just click on the drop-down menu, show you every feature, and then say, you figure it out. You figure it out why we're better. Makes a lot of sense and also sounds very actionable at the same time. That's the idea, man. I'm all about the actionable stuff over here. I don't like. I just think the world doesn't need another book to talk about conceptual stuff for us to go think about in B2B. What we need to do is like, how do we get this stuff done? Like, we want to build a sales pitch? Okay, tell me the steps to build it. That's what I'm trying to do over here. What do we think book three is going to be about? There's no book three, man. I'm an old lady. This is the end. <laughs> Whoop it up now, kids. <laughs> I saw the LinkedIn post. Book one is obviously awesome. Obviously awesome. Book two is sales pitch. I strategically locate them here for people who can see me on video because then you can see them sitting on my shoulder. They're in the video and they're linked below, of course. Yeah. I think book two had an awesome launch from what I can see on LinkedIn. Were there any insights from that? Thank you. It's really new. Like we've only been a couple of weeks. I've only had it out there a couple of weeks, but yeah, launch is going great. I look at books this way because I'm trying to write a book that's useful. I don't actually care if it has an awesome launch because an awesome launch is just marketing. Like it's just marketing. And that just means a whole bunch of people bought your book on the day you said, go buy the book. But the real test of whether a book is good or not is anybody talking about it six months from now. Don't get me wrong. I like that it's a good book launch selling a lot of books. But what I need is for people to actually read the book and then we'll find out whether it's good or not. So come ask me in six months whether how this thing is still doing. For sure. And it's like how many sales you're still getting when you stop marketing is the other great measure, right? That's exactly it. Like what I think is really cool about my first book is this year I will sell almost exactly the same number of books that I sold the first year it was out. And it's three getting on four years old. That is how you know you have a good book. 
That's how you know. So we'll see. The second one, I don't know. Like, you don't really know. Like, you do your best job at trying to explain a thing, but not everybody's going to understand what the heck you're talking about. (laughs) So let's see. (laughs) I don't get to decide. Readers get to decide. April, awesome. Really awesome. I feel like we covered a lot of ground, but I think because we gave the examples and the theory, I feel like it's going to make sense to the audience. I hope so. You are just absolutely incredible, like, talker. And I love how you laugh at your own jokes a lot (laughs) because they're really funny. (laughs) Hey, come on, man. We have to be having some fun with this. Otherwise, why are we doing it? (laughs) I totally agree. So we're going to link to your LinkedIn below. Obviously, we're going to link to both of our books. Anything else we should give a shout out to? No, I don't think so. Like, a couple of things. Like, I think the books are a good place to start. Not everybody's a reader. So if you're not a reader, there's a couple other places where you can absorb some of my stuff. So LinkedIn's the only social media that I'm really active on. I got a podcast and the podcast is for positioning nerds. <laughs> so if you want to do the gory deep dive on aspects of positioning, you can, the podcast called Positioning with April Dunford, it's easy enough to find. And then I'm doing a newsletter now too, because I find like writing on LinkedIn feels like writing a blog post. So I'm like, why the heck am I not just doing a newsletter? So I got a news, I got a sub stack. You can find that Google around. You guys can link to it or whatever. But those are the best ways to find me, I think. Amazing. That will be in the show notes. April, thank you so much for your time. All right. No problem. This has been great. Okay. Big shout out to April for coming on. What an awesome speaker. You can tell that April really loves this stuff the way she talks the story she tells and how she laughs i find it fascinating i want to thank you for tuning into the show for giving us all the great feedback the followers attract the followers on apple spotify and google podcast three major places and the followers are going up like they haven't gone up before so i'm super happy with the responses i get people dming me on linkedin saying that they like the show and actually for the first time ever last week in this co-working space that i go to someone was like hey excuse me is your name tom i'm like yes and he's like i listened to your podcast it's super awesome and so that actually should give a shout out to perry who runs the seo agency called mad x so if you just google mad x seo agency for SaaS, you'll find it so shout out to perry for being a listener and of course thank you for listening